Hello, and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation survey conducted last year, more than half of U.S. adults report that they've gone into debt because of medical or dental bills in the past five years. About a quarter of them owe more than $5,000, and about one in five of those with any amount of debt do not expect to ever pay it off. Medical debt can lead to problems, including avoiding needed healthcare, food insecurity, and a loss of housing. It's one of the leading reasons people file for bankruptcy in the United States. So joining us today to discuss an innovative response to this issue is Allison Sesso. Allison is the president and CEO of RIP Medical Debt. That's a nonprofit organization that buys bundles of delinquent hospital bills, either from collections agencies or directly from hospitals, to relieve low-income people of the burden of having to repay them. Uh, they report that they have eliminated more than $8.5 billion in medical debt for over 5 million people. Hi, Allison Sesso, and welcome to Turn on the Lights. We're delighted to have you with us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So let me start with you, if you say a few words about yourself, and tell us about RIP Medical Debt and where it came from and a bit, a bit about its history. Sure. So my name is Allison Sesso, as you said in the introduction. I am the proud president and CEO of RIP Medical Debt. Personally, I am living in Queens, New York, and that's where we base most of our work out of. But we are we do have employees across the country, and we certainly work across the country in all 50 states, including D.C. And so what we are is a national charity that is focused on ending medical debt. And we mean that in a couple of ways. First and foremost, we put the patient first. We want to make sure that we remove that burden of medical debt from patients. And we do that with a very unique model that takes a dollar and gets rid of $100 worth of medical debt by mimicking the for-profit debt buyers. And I can go more into that, but that's the number one thing we do is we remove debt and we've gotten rid of eight and a half billion dollars of debt using this model, helping 5.5 million people which we are very proud of. But at the same time, while we're very proud of that work, when we say we want to end medical debt, we recognize that picking up the pieces at the end of the line after people have medical debt is not the final solution to this problem. So we're really trying to be intentional in leveraging what we do to tell a larger story about the problem tell people's experiences with medical debt and try to push for, make an impetus for larger systemic change so that there's less for us to do. And hopefully one day, nothing for us to do. Allison, can you, can you back up a bit and just tell us more about medical debt? What is it? How big is the problem in this country? What's Can you give us a sense of the geometry of this problem? Like, How big is this challenge for us as a nation? So more than 100 million people have medical debt in the United States. That's 41% of adults. So it's pretty substantial and widespread and a very- 41%? Correct. Every other, every other adult in this country has right. a medical burden, a medical debt. Medical burden and medical debt are not the same thing. So yeah. just to be clear, because medical debt means that you're not actually paying on that responsibility. Medical burden, I would say that there, I don't know what that number is because if you ha are in a payment plan for a hospital, you're not in debt, you're paying it. But I would say you're in burden, yeah. <laughs> right? So there is a difference. I want to make that distinction. That the 
the amount of debt that's out there is at least $195 billion of debt. And that's really based on credit reports. So it's probably an undercount. There's probably a lot that is people put on credit cards, for example, and that's probably not captured. So that there's a lot more debt out there than the $195 billion, but that's at least the size of the problem. So as you can see, it is it's pretty... How substantial is it from an individual's point of view? What, what's it like for the people you try to help in terms of effects on their daily life? So it really depends on the individual. Some people, we get rid of $1,000, right? And depending on their own financial circumstances, that could be a big help, a little help, or just a medium help. Other people, we get rid of a pretty substantial size bill, say $10,000. And that, I think, regardless of your income is probably, as long as you're within our range, is probably helpful. So I think it depends on the individual and their own indiv and their circumstances. What I think the key here is that it does get rid of something for a very low cost. and it really removes a stigma that the people are feeling. People feel like they are failing when they don't pay their bills. This is not something people are just shirking the responsibilities of. They, they feel a mental health burden, actually. And then there's the data that really demonstrates that people feel a mental health burden when they have medical debt. And that really turns into stress for the individual, right? And undermines the whole system of healthcare because it heart turns into high blood pressure. It creates heart problems for individuals, ultimately. Stress really does induce poor health outcomes, not to mention the fact that it makes people make choices in their budgets like buying less healthy foods, taking on additional work because they need to pay these bills, which are all undermining their health. So there's a lot of sort of repercussions, I would there's say. A cycle um, here. You're yes. painting a picture of a cycle here of medical debt causing unsafe or unhealthy choices in a person's life that results in more health expense that further causes more debt, which makes a lot of sense. And, is particularly Allison, can you tell us a story you must encounter with much gratefulness, I imagine, as you forgive these debts for folks who are facing big mountains of, of expense? Th there must be some stories that stick with you here and that feel yeah. particularly proud of. I'd love to hear a couple of examples of some of these experiences. Yeah, sure. There's one person that I think comes to mind from Utah who served the country, was a veteran. He ended up having a uh, issue with his nerves and he had to go for pretty significant surgery for that. He did have a coverage through the VA, but I guess it wasn't adequate enough or he had to go out of network or I don't know exactly the circumstance, but he need, he ended up in pretty substantial medical debt and we relieved that debt. But before we were able to do that, he his credit did suffer pretty substantially. And the saddest part of the story was that he wasn't able to co-sign for his son's student loans and to go to college. And so he really just felt really ashamed about that to have to say to his son, because I needed to take care of my own physical health and I had to take care of my own physical health because I served this country. I ended up in medical debt and now I'm not able to be there for you to make sure that you can start your life in the way that I would want you to and that I would hope and wish and put you on that right path. And so we were able to remove that medical debt. And man, was he, he overjoyed that we were able to do that. I'm not quite sure whether or not it was in time for the whole loan thing to come into play. He certainly was thrilled and just shocked by the fact that we took over this debt. So that's one story that I really like. And then there's another person from Tennessee where we got rid of $8,000 related to the birth of her son. Now, the interesting story here is this was a pretty old debt. And this just shows you how the debt follows you and lingers. Her son's 19. When we relieved the debt, her son was 19. This was related to his birth. So that's an old debt, right? And 
she was so grateful because it had been following her and weighing on her his whole life. And it was because he was a feverish child when he was first born and he needed some real significant care in the first week of his life. But then they, he got that care. Thank goodness. Right. We do have good health care actually available. We just can't afford it. So she got that care for her son. And look, he's 19. He's thriving. But because his first week was difficult, she had this eight grand holding up over her head the first almost 20 years of his life. So how does this work, Allison? How do people get referred to you and what do you do? Yeah, it's definitely unique and it's exciting. So we take donated dollars. So we thrive on donations from individuals, churches, corporations, increasingly government. And, and then we go to the healthcare market. We either go to providers and increasingly we really are trying to get the debt directly from providers because we that story I told is great about the older debt. We do really think that the sooner we get our hands on the debt, the better, obviously. We don't want somebody having to deal that burden for 20 years. We want we want to get rid of it earlier. And most of the debt increasingly that we get is much younger than that story that I told. So we go to the providers We and we go also to the healthcare market, meaning entities that have already bought the debt from healthcare providers. And basically look at their all of the bad debt that's on their portfolio. We have a proprietary debt engine that we've built. We have a team of engineers that have built this proprietary debt engine. We ingest that file, if you will, into our system. We buy data from an offshoot of TransUnion called FinThrive, and that helps us identify the income situation of the individual. And anyone that is 400% of poverty or below for the for one individual, that's about $55,000 just to give people a sense of that. And or if the debt itself is large relative to their income, they could be above 400%. So if the debt is 5% or more of their overall income, they would also qualify. And we we price the, it's based, the pricing is based on the age of the debt. That's how the for-profit debt market tends to work. And then we basically say, these are all the individuals that qualify for our program. This is the price we would pay for the entire portfolio. And then we enter into a, a sales agreement and we wire over the money and then we own the debt. And then we, our system like, helps send out in mass, and this is thousands of letters at a time, the thousands of letters to individuals to let them know that we've relieved them of debt. So what's interesting about it is that you take no action as an individual. You cannot apply for this. There is no way. Nobody should call us and say, could you take care of my debt? It is source-based, which is actually really different than most social interventions. So usually you have to fill out an application and that's usually the biggest hiccup for some of these programs. And ours, frankly, even if you didn't get the letter, debt relief is there, but it obviously is important that you get the letter and information that the debt's been relieved. Also, do you have any sense of the profile of the debtors that you've relieved now? And you mentioned at the top of this conversation, something like eight, I don't want to get the numbers wrong, but the number of debtor, folks that were experiencing medical debt that you relieved, do you have a sense of in aggregate, you know, who these people are? Who are these folks? Are they, you said they're all in all 50 states. Do they concentrate in urban, rural geographies? Are there racial ethnic categories that you seem to relieve burden from more often than others? In gender. I'm just curious, are there medical conditions that seem to come up more often than not? Is it ER bills that are the ones that are driving the burden? What do you know about the people here and what has driven them into these circumstances? 
Yeah. So actually, so I could, I will tell you that we haven't quite done that level of analysis of the entire portfolio of the debt that we've bought to date yet. It is like in terms of like the race and all of those other pieces. However, what we have done and what we're building even more of our capacity to do is we have an anthropologist on our team and her job is actually to follow up with individuals that we've helped. So the letter that we send is not just, okay, congratulations, your debt was relieved, move on with your life. It is actually an invitation for them to come to us and tell their story. One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, is that we want people to we want to make change here, right? We want to say that there should we shouldn't be doing this much debt relief. Like there should be larger changes in the system. And so part of how we do that is through storytelling. And so this anthropologist's job is to when the people come back to us and tell their stories, for them to, for her to understand what it, what their circumstances were when they had medical debt, some of the questions you asked, what is their life like? What are the feelings that they were feeling? And what did it feel like to have it relieved as well, right? So that we have a better sense of those dynamics. And we're actually building a database that, that, puts the themes forward of what the common things people are experiencing, the stress, the mental health issues. Are they single mothers? What other kinds of debts are they dealing with? All of that kind of information. So we are trying to, through this anthropologist and storytelling, get a better sense of what medical debt means for people and and what it means for the individuals we've been helping. And so that that's really how we're approaching that question that you're asking. And we do also have intentions of doing a much more deeper, like, massive data approach, but we are, we're less than 10 years old as an institution. So we're building every day our capabilities and that's in the pipeline in the short term. So let's go back to how you do what you do, because I'm not a a financial person. Can we unpack some language you're using? You say buying debt. So let's say I'm a patient and a hospital has told me that I owe them $10,000. So I now owe $10,000 to the hospital. Now, when you say some people buy that debt, what does that mean? Somebody goes to the hospital and says, we'll give you $5,000 because no. you're going to see, how does it work? They'll give what them $100. A tiny amount of money. Give them $100 for $10,000 worth of debt. And that's what, that's $1 relieves $100 of medical debt. So let me, I understand the question and, and why it, it took me a little while to understand this myself when I first took on this role. There's a for-profit debt market, right? So what that means is that, so hospitals and other healthcare providers know that there's going to be a certain amount of people that aren't going to be able to pay. They just, they aren't going to be able to pay. So they write those debts off to bad debt. And then they end up with an accumulation of those. Now they do try to collect on them, but to those hospitals and entities, if they, those are kind of worth zero in, in some ways. So I'm a for-profit entrepreneur, if you will, right? And I say to that hospital, hey, that thing's worth zero to you. What if I gave you a couple bucks for it, right? The whole portfolio, right? You're right now, you're getting nothing out of that. I'll I'll give you some money, but, you, but then I'm going to own it and then I'm going to work it, right? So that what I what working it means that now I owe, now those people, because I bought it from you, owe those debts to me. And so I, if I call them, if I take them to court, if I take the time to work those accounts and try to get those people to pay, I will make my money back. And spend, but I can only make my money back if I pay you very little for the face value of what those people owe. So it's a bet that the entrepreneur debt collector is taking, if you will, and they buy the entire portfolio. They're making a pretty fair and reasonable value proposition to the healthcare entity. And that's really what we're, as as a nonprofit, taking advantage of in some ways. We're saying, hey, we'll do the same thing, except we're not trying to make our money back, but relieving people of all the debt. So we're getting taking advantage of the pricing. But because we're using donated dollars, we don't need to, and we're a nonprofit, we're not 
needing to make any money back. And then you show up like that old TV show, The Millionaire, and you say, dear Don, you owed money, but guess what? You got a check or something that you (laughs) delivered to the team? Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's like literally a letter that just... As we're, we, I think the first thing we have to try to convince people is we're real, right? Like yeah, that letter must get thrown in the trash every time. I mean, three of them. That's also important. Why we want to get people more familiar with us and be more of a name brand, so that people are looking for the letter as opposed to thinking this is a scam. Luckily, people can easily go to our website and see that we're legitimate. And as soon as you Google us, you find that there's lots of legitimate stories about what we do and all of that. So I think it's not a lot of the letters back actually are funny because they say. I looked at this at first and thought, give me a break. And then I looked you up and then I cried. It must be a good feeling to you, Allison. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, it's both incredible feeling to be able to help individuals and honestly, incredibly frustrating that I have to do it. What would you want to see changed that would do you out of a job? You've watched this long enough. What have we got wrong in this country that's... <laughs> Speaking of necessary to have RIP medical debt. I'm like, how long is this podcast? No, I have to say, I think from our perspective, we've, we have been working on public policy and agenda and thinking about the changes that we think are frankly feasible. And so this is a big question of if we could start from scratch, where what would we do? And then there's where are we now and what's actually politically feasible? feasible. And frankly, I'm a pragmatist and I want to be reasonable about what we can accomplish and put solutions forward that I think could actually happen. So the three buckets that we think about this is really in before, during, and after. So before somebody walks through the door of a healthcare entity, we got to make sure that they have affordable healthcare coverage. People, yes, over 90% of this country now because of A, has health insurance. That's great. But the health insurance has huge deductibles and lots of -of out-of-pocket costs. So that's where a lot of the medical debt is coming from these days. So we have to make sure that people have affordable health care coverage. So that's the first thing. The second is once they are at the hospital, we have to make sure that they have access to and it's easily accessible and that hospitals have in place. And frankly, I think other healthcare providers as well, although they're not required to, financial assistance policies. Those are so important to people's ability to not be burdened by the debts. And financial assistance policies are basically making sure that you get charity care if you're under a certain level of poverty or at a certain income level, or you get a discount at other income levels. And unfortunately, some hospitals do that really well and other hospitals don't do it so well. And so making sure that we shore that up is really important. And then the third piece is once somebody does end up in medical debt, if those other two things aren't in place, making sure that there are real limitations to what can be done to collect on that medical debt. I really think that what's called extraordinary collections actions should be limited when it comes to medical debt. You shouldn't be able to take someone's house away, their car away, garnish their wages. These are things that really ruin someone's absolute access to credit because they had a health event that they couldn't control and ended up going to get the health care that they need and couldn't afford it because that's everybody's situation. Allison, you mentioned something here towards the end, extraordinary collection measures. You mentioned some ways in which those are, those are done. What would it take to, is that the norm right now across the country? What's the, what's the kind of upshot of how much progress can we make towards removing those kinds of. Those yeah. Kinds? I think that 
there's lo- lots of state and f- and local governments have have been considered. I think it's more state governments. I should say. It's, I'm not sure that local governments have this power, but state governments can can put limitations on what can be done in terms of collections actions, and a couple of them have. I wish I could think of a couple off the top of my head right now, but honestly, I can't. I, there's a lot of state policy out there that are diff- different, but certainly some states have have passed laws and have said. Absolutely. Like you cannot take someone's house away. You There are limitations to what you can do. You can't sue patients. I think New York actually just recently passed that said you can't sue patients anymore. Does your work actually result at times in the hospital itself for giving the debt? We've seen in the newspaper, hospitals get into a lot of trouble for pursuing pursuing debts in many cases. Have you seen a trend among hospitals to release the debt or relieve the debt themselves before you need to get involved or become a part of this, are hospitals themselves releasing people from the debts that they're incurring after after some time? Yeah, it's a good question. So what our model does, and I think this is a really huge benefit, is it gives hospitals a free analysis of their financial assistance policies and how they're working in some ways, because we're looking at the what they've written off to bad debt. And essentially, when a, what a hospital can do when somebody can't pay is they can, they've almost two choices, right? They could put it into charity care or financial assistance, or they could put it into bad debt. And what we're relieving is the bad debt. So when we do this analysis, we're giving a lot of the hospitals, frankly, tell us, you're not going to find much. And then they're shocked when we find a bunch of bad debt, like usually 80% of the file qualifies. And it's often because people's, we're taking a fresh look at the people's financial situation and people's financial situations change, especially after a health event, right? Like you, you might've walked into the hospital, which is when they put check your income situation, you end up with cancer or something that's debilitating and you your financial situation could deteriorate. So we're taking a fresh look. And also it depends on the hospital how much they look at the financial situation of of an individual. So what I think our model does is it gives hospitals an opportunity to relieve debts that that are on their books and which is I think a service to the community. No hospital is making a bunch of money off of us. I just want to be clear. They're they're really doing the right thing by the patients. And I think debt is a sort of inevitable part of the system for them as well. And so what we do is offer them a way to handle that. And we offer them this important insight into how their financial assistance policies are not working the way they think. And so it's an opportunity for them to take to rethink what's working and what's not in terms of their policies, if that makes sense. Why doesn't the hospital just, it's without you in the middle, just tell the patient the debt's forgiven? Yeah, because I think that they've, it's because it's expensive, like it's a cost, right? Like I just said before, I have to buy data, I have to analyze it. Like the hospital, they have, they shouldn't be spending that much money, frankly, on like trying to follow up with people and trying to figure out the finance. They should be spending money on the healthcare part of their business. And so the more they invest in looking, following up with people and having to buy the data to take the fresh look at people and then all of that, I think think we want hospitals to do that's for sure. But I think once it's in the bad debt category, they, that's it. They're done with it and they they move on. And they often, I think, also don't appreciate that if they stopped sending bills, which oftentimes they do, that the patient still remembers that they have that bill. And so from the hospital revenue cycle, people's perspective, if you will, they they feel like, well, we stopped sending bills. Yeah, we sent a couple bills at, at initially and then they didn't pay them. And then we eventually wrote it off. And so that we wrote it off and we 
we moved on. And I don't know that they appreciate that that prevents the patient from coming back to get more services when they need them and also creates this mental health burden that undermines their overall health. And by the way, a lot of, I just want to add one other thing that's important. There's two things hospitals could and should do. In terms of the charity care, when they do give charity care, there's no requirement that they notify the patient that they, and so that's important, right? The patient still will think that they owe the money if they didn't get a notification that it was written off to charity care even. And then the other thing is they can do, and a lot of them do, but a lot of them don't do what's called presumptive eligibility, which is essentially what we're doing, which means that we are doing that proactive look. It does cost money, as I mentioned, but it's I think if you build the system around it, it it really could hospitals reduce how much people go into the bad debt bucket versus the charity care bucket. Allison, is some healthcare providers are for-profit investor owns. They make they make their corporations that make profit. Others are nonprofits. They have to they have to not lose money, but they allegedly nonprofit. Don't answer this if you don't want to, but do you notice a difference in behavior about this between the for-profit and the nonprofit? hospitals? Yeah, surprisingly, not that much, to be honest. So that's, I do find it a little interesting that we, I often hear this argument, they're nonprofits and then they have an obligation. But the thing is that they're not financed like a typical nonprofit hospitals. I mean, they are, they do have to raise revenue that they don't, their funding comes from for-profit insurance companies, right? So they ultimately, so they have to, what they have to do is balance their payer mix. That's what the, that's what they, how hospitals talk. They talk about like their payer mix, meaning some people who have good insurance, some people have mediocre insurance, some people who are Medicaid patients, some people who are Medicare patients. Like they think about the different kinds of people that are coming into their hospital system and who they're providing care to. And they have to balance that in terms of making sure that they're making enough money to run and provide the care to everybody. And frankly, everyone asks about pricing all the time. And at the end of the day, pricing is really, it it doesn't make sense to people because it's a sort of a made up number that's based on what the hospital, like there's built in subsidies, if you will, into the pricing. Like they build into the cost, the fact that they're going to have to provide free and discounted care to a bunch of people. And that's negotiated. Essentially, the price is negotiated with an insurance company, which assumes that the individual isn't paying. So their ability to pay isn't sort of part of the equation. And that's why it's so confusing to people about pricing and why also it's insane to tell people that they should be shopping for healthcare. Allison, you're working has garnered a lot of national attention. I know last year there was a summit or a meeting held in the, at the White House around this. Are you getting support for what you're doing from leaders and uh, political leaders, leaders in the health system more broadly at the White House? What's the kind of what's happening for you right now nationally? Yeah, there's a lot of good attention. Actually, just recently, the White House put out a fact sheet around medical debt and pointed to some of the work that we're doing across the country in different localities. So like Cook County was the first one that's in the Chicago area, came to us and said, can we use the American Rescue Plan dollars that were allocated for this purpose? And we said, sure, I don't see why not. And, and the White House mentioned that in, in their medical debt fact sheet that that was happening. And Cook County was the first one. And we actually are relieving a billion dollars of debt there for $12 million investment that they're making in us over three years, which is incredible. It's really there. This is really aligned with their health equity lens and work overall, which makes perfect sense. And then there's the city of Toledo, Lucas County, which Toledo sits in, are both allocating funds to us. We're about to enter contracts there. New Orleans, we're about to enter a contract. Just the other day, Milwaukee passed something to put funding forward and for they're this. they're funding you to, to relieve debt in their localities. Correct. 
That's right. In their localities. Exactly. So they're funding us to, to it's to us. It's just like another donor. It's, it is a little bit more, it's a little bit more complicated because with government appropriately, you're using taxpayer dollars, even if there are ARPA funds that are coming from the federal government. So there has to be over, even more oversight than your typical donor, but that's fine. And that's all good. just, it's easy to do those things. And I think good for the nonprofit to, to be able to do those things, actually. Allison, my, my family and its annual giving makes a contribution to RIP medical debt for the last five years or so, at least. Like, could you say Thank you. for a few minutes how you, just to let the audience know, how can people find you and support your efforts? What's the best way for us, for people to do that? Yeah. So go to ripmedicaldebt.org and there's plenty of options actually of how to donate. We I really try to encourage people to donate to general medical debt relief. That's the easiest for us to implement. But there's also plenty of state campaigns if you're really dedicated to making sure that your dollars go to a particular state and of course, unrestricted dollars as well. But yeah, you just go to our website and donate. It's relatively easy. And we do, we take other, we take stock donations, but we take all kinds of donations at RIP and turn them into medical debt relief. Well, Allison, thank you for what you do. Uh, it's This is a good story in a terrain in which there's a lot of darkness. I also hear your frustration with the idea that people acquire medical debt in this country at the level that they do and that you encounter. We share that. And like you, we're looking for policy changes to make that problem go away. But before it goes away, it's great to have you there to be helping. We generally ask our guests as a final question about optimism and pessimism. You must have great days and days when you're a little bit discouraged by what you're seeing. How are you feeling now? Is this country headed into worse territory right now with respect to medical debt? Or do you think that there's improvement that you can see? Would you, how would you score yourself on that? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And I, for me, I would say I'm, I tend to be an optimist. I don't know how I'd get out of bed in the morning and do this job if I was a pessimist. It's just, it's, it could be very overwhelming. Otherwise, I do this because I think that it can fundamentally shift things and that, that it, that, that will happen ultimately. I think it may take some time, but I, and change is incremental and you have to appreciate and grab onto those smaller wins while being mad as hell that the larger ones aren't there yet. I think that's how I live and, and approach my work. I feel feel good about this moment, actually, with medical debt because everyone's talking about it. I like to think that we have something to do with that, which we're trying to keep the pressure on. It's a popular issue right now. People are finally seeing. I think 10 years ago, this wasn't appreciated at the impact it was having on people to the extent it is right now. And so I think that the the political winds are going in the right direction. The fact that the White House is actually putting out a fact sheet on medical debt is a huge change. So I'm feeling pretty optimistic that at least the issue is getting attention. And once the issue gets attention, then change comes behind it. You have to be patient, but you also, again, have to be driven by your impatience to, to push for that change incessantly. And that's how it happens. Yeah, I'm wondering if one of the changes you didn't hint at earlier, you're talking about people feeling guilt or blaming themselves for getting into the into medical debt, that's mirrored sometimes in our culture by blame in which people associate debt with lack of merit. Is there a shift there? Or what do you think about that? Because we all could be there. Well, let me leave you with this. There was a Kaiser study done recently that says that the what the number one cause of medical debt is not your insurance status, but it's whether or not you get sick. Sure. So we're all we're <laughs> all in this boat together. And frankly, even if you're not in medical debt, you probably know someone else that is and or you are paying some you are having a burden of medical care costs or you will. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to pay attention to this issue because it's coming for us. It's already impacting a lot of other people, which ultimately impacts us all. But it is coming for each of us individually. It's 
simple. Well, Allison, thank you so much for what you're doing, at least now, to help us as we try to transition to a hopefully better place in the future. Thank you for your optimism. Thank you for the work that you're doing for the eight and a half billion dollars that you've already relieved and the five and a half million individuals and families that you've helped. That is an incredible chunk out of the out of the problem, as big as the problem is. So thank you so much for your work and for joining us here on Turn Off Lights. Allison Sesso, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well done, Allison. Thank you. That was a lot of the stories we're telling us are pretty, pretty dark and discouraging. And here you, you're both your work and your, I would say the, your attitude, the way you sound gives us a bit, some bit of hope. Hopefully this will generate some more support for your organization. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Bye Thank folks. You, Take care. So should we have a bit of a conversation? All right. Yeah, we've got to do the post talk. Yeah. What are some of your thoughts, uh, Kate, are listening to Allison? She brings well, does bring a bit of a smile to one's face, but what else? It's exciting what they're doing to, to they found a solution to a problem that should really never have been there in the first place on some level. And I guess my one thing that I keep wondering about is they're relieving all this debt, but how much more are we accumulating? And I, but I don't know that I have a, I don't have a sense of this, but is the bathtub getting, are we, as we drain the water out of the bathtub, as Allison and the RIP medical debt colleagues relieve the pressure on so many families, are we just, is the system just adding new pressure and burden? Are we pouring more water in that's at a pace that's actually overwhelming what we can relieve? So that, that was what I was wondering about. And that's on the pessimistic side. On the other hand, as I said at the end there, five and a half million families that, that don't face the kind of crushing burden that people, that they would have faced without RIP medical debt existing. That's got to feel pretty good for her and for the team that she works with. That's where I was in that conversation. Yeah, I must say, it sounds simple now that I've, now that she's explained it, but if the debt is not worth anything, that it, it's the hospitals or others are never going to see it and you can buy it for a small amount and retire it, that's a pretty straight shot. But it is not the upstream problem Probably. that you're talking about. It's how do we have a country that digs people so deeply into debt when they get sick. I don't, I really don't think that's true in other nations and maybe in other episodes of Turn on the Lights, we can explore that question. Why here is this such a burdensome problem? Almost half of the people in the United States in medical debt. Yeah, it's got to be something. Statistic. It's just hard to imagine that you, when you go to the grocery store that, you know, every other person that you meet in the store is facing a medical debt. It's crazy to imagine and contemplate. I, thought, I, I had this conversation with an IHI employee, actually, whose family member was still in another place. And, and what she said to me was, it, at the end of the day, I feel that the care that the person was getting might not have been quite what they would have gotten at the Massachusetts General Hospital or at Kaiser Permanente or Mayo Clinic. But it was pretty good. It was very good, in fact. But what gave her great comfort was the fact that she knew that at the end of this day, the family was not going to face some insurmountable healthcare bill. And so that has to weigh in the, in all, I think, in our collective imagination about what health means in this country. It's this combination of we get great care, but we face an enormous, we sometimes pay a generational cost for that. For example, the story that she gave of the veteran who was facing bills that couldn't, he couldn't pay for his kid, his son's college education, or literally in 19, 19 years later, a mother contemplating the debt that she still owed on her childbirth. It's a generational cost that we're incurring. And that's got a way on us as a, as a... Let's celebrate that RIP medical debt and hopefully other organizations like hers are around, but we have to keep our eye on the causes. And this is a country spending almost twice as much as any other country per capita on healthcare. We know that. 
our prices look crazy when viewed from outside the U.S. So we got to dig in further in this and hopefully make this wonderful work that Allison Sesso and RIP Medical Debt are doing unnecessary yes. sometime in the not too distant. Yeah, really helping her work her way out of a job. But yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Kater. Till next time. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.